Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, and this is my podcast. It's mostly for parents of children with cancer or leukemia, but it's also for anyone else who's involved in caring for children with cancer or leukemia. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different for this episode. What I'm going to do is explain a research project that we have going here in all of the children's cancer centres around Australia. What I'm going to do is explain the trial in a way that I would if I was looking to uh, see if a family wanted to participate in this trial. And then I'd be getting them to look at the consent forms and see if they want to sign the consent forms and to participate in the trial. Now, this may or may not be of interest to a lot of people who aren't going to be offered this trial in Australia, but I actually think it might be of interest to more people. Firstly, the trial, well, it's called the PRISM trial, PRISM, and it's a trial of testing tumour samples and blood samples in great detail, testing the DNA and looking for changes in the tumour that might mean that a certain drug might work or it might not work and a whole lot of other uh, related research is being done. That might be of interest to people outside of Australia because very similar trials are being conducted in multiple countries around the world. There's a very similar trial being performed in the United States. It's called the Paediatric Match Trial. There's a trial in Europe called the MAPIACTS trial. There's similar trials being done in all sorts of countries, in Canada, in Britain, in Holland, in Sweden, in most of Europe, and multiple other centres. So what I've got to say about the overall strategy and the overall logic and science of what's going on does end up potentially of interest to people, even if they're not going to be in this particular Australian trial that's called PRISM. The other reason you might find it of interest is that I have to cover some of the ground about what is research and what constitutes research and so when do we need to get a special permission and consent from families that's over and above what you normally agree to when you just have a basic blood test, for instance. So there's some material in in this talk that might be of interest, even if you're not particularly likely to participate in the PRISM trial itself. So let's start and imagine that doctors approaching you with an introduction to the PRISM trial and about to talk to you and explain what it's about and maybe they've got the parent information sheet or the patient information sheets all printed out, ready to take you through it and explain what this trial is about and to see if you would like to have your child participate in the trial. Let's imagine that's the situation. So first off, let me tell you that the short version of the PRISM trial is that we're looking for permission to ship a sample of the tumour and a blood sample of normal blood to the research labs so that they can be tested in great detail. They can be tested for all sorts of DNA abnormalities and RNA abnormalities in the tumour and in the blood. And what we're trying to do is see if there's something 
in the tumour that's different to the blood. Okay, The blood represents the normal DNA of a child and then the tumour has uh, a lot of so-called normal DNA, the same as the blood, but a tumour very often has some changes in the DNA. That's why it became a tumour. So this is to look at the tumour DNA and compare it to the blood DNA and see if there's something there that makes us think that a certain drug might be useful in treating the tumour. That's basically what it's all about, sending it off to be tested in the DNA tests and RNA tests on the blood and the tumour and a further round of even more obscure research tests and looking to see, does this give us some guidance about how to treat the disease? Okay, so about this point, you might be wondering, what's the big deal? Uh, why do I need to have all these explanations? I have my child's blood tests sent all over the place all the time. We have x-rays, we have scans, they test biopsies, they do blood cultures. Why do we have to have some elaborate 20-page information sheet with a special session on signing permission? Why do I have to record a whole podcast if that's all we're asking? If Suppose that's all we're asking is permission to send off a sample of blood and tumour to some lab and do a whole lot of testing. Why do we need this elaborate process? And that's a very good question. So let me explain what's different about this compared to any normal blood tests or other tests that you might have done in a hospital. Let's look at doing a normal sort of blood test, for instance. Okay, imagine you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I want to check your cholesterol level. We all know that having a high cholesterol level puts you at a greater risk of having a heart attack later in life. So the doctor says, okay, I want to do your cholesterol level. So the doctor sticks a needle in the vein, fakes the blood, puts it in the tube and sends it off to have the cholesterol level measured. Or maybe the doctor doesn't even collect the blood. Maybe the doctor writes out a form, gives it to you, sends you down the road to the shopping centre where there's a pathology lab. You get the blood taken, the blood gets sent off to a lab and they measure your cholesterol level. So I need to explain why that's different to what we're proposing here. And the difference is what we're proposing here is research. So what's the difference? Firstly, that blood test for the cholesterol level is being performed in clinically approved labs. It's not being done in a research lab. It's being done in an approved lab for doing medical tests. So in Australia, a lab like that would have been accredited by a group called NATA. Or in the United States, it's a group called CLIA, C-L-I-A. And in every country, there's a process of labs being accredited and approved to do medical tests on human beings and report findings. You can't just set up a bodgy lab to measure cholesterol in your garage and, and measure people's cholesterol. Uh, the lab has to be approved. The second thing is that the machine that measures the cholesterol level in your blood, likewise, is an approved machine. It's a machine that's been tested and shown to be a reliable way of measuring cholesterol and the machine has to be maintained in a certain way, and there'll be logbooks to show that they maintain the machine properly. 
And if you invent a new machine to measure cholesterol and you think it's better than another machine, well, you're going to have to get that machine approved by the authorities to show that it's a legitimate cholesterol measuring machine. And that's a key difference. What we're doing in the PRISM study is testing the tumour in the blood in a research lab. So it's not part of basic hospital lab or a basic pathology lab. It's a research lab, and so that's different. Now, many of the tests we're doing in the PRISM uh, uh, research project are very well-established tests, and they're being performed at very high quality, but it's still a research lab, so that's different. And some of the tests that we're doing are more experimental. We're still working out how to do the tests properly, and so they're all the more experimental tests. The next thing that's experimental about it is that we are working out how to use the results of the tests we do. Let's go back to that cholesterol level. If you send off the cholesterol and it goes to an approved lab and they test it on an approved machine and they issue a report and they tell you your cholesterol level is 9. That's high in Australian units. So suppose they say the cholesterol level is 9. Well, we know what to do with that result. We have decades and decades of uh, good quality science that show that a cholesterol level of 9 is not a good thing and it's associated with a higher risk of getting a heart attack or other vascular disease later in life. So we know what the test result means. We know how to act on it. And by the way, we know that certain changes in lifestyle or even a medication to lower the cholesterol would be a good idea if the cholesterol level is 9. Now, on the other hand, if I decided that I'm going to measure people's cholesterol levels and it's going to prove to me whether they are at great risk of getting something else, say, ingrown toenails. Suppose I thought, I wonder if high cholesterol levels cause ingrown toenails. So there's no science to show that high cholesterol levels cause ingrown toenails. And I want to find out, do high cholesterol levels cause ingrown toenails? Well, that would be a research project. So if I wanted to go and work out the answer to that question, I would have to do a research project. Even though I did the cholesterol level in an approved lab with an approved machine and everything all very approved, to answer the question of its connection with ingrown toenails, well, that would be a research project. And I would actually have to ask the people giving blood for permission to do that research and I would need approval from the ethics committee of the hospital etc to do that research project. So even with an approved lab there are certain uses of blood tests that would be called research because you're looking at an interpretation that isn't standard. And getting back to the PRISM study we are doing the tests in a research lab but we're also looking at ways to interpret the results that might not be completely standard. Now, there would be times when we get results from this tumour analysis and it shows an abnormality and it's very clear that with that result you should try a certain drug. But there's other times where we're still trying to work out what does the test result mean and is it really useful in predicting that a certain drug would work or a certain drug wouldn't work. So we're evaluating, we're researching 
how to interpret the results of these tests and that's another reason why this has to be called research, not just standard medical care like checking your cholesterol level. The next reason that the PRISM study has to be considered research is because we're putting all the data together to analyse it. Let's talk about that cholesterol level again. If I send off your cholesterol level to work out what to do about the cholesterol level in you, in a particular individual, that's standard medical care, that's all fine, that's not research. But suppose I had a theory that cholesterol levels were higher in the population of Sydney than they were in the population of San Francisco. If I wanted to test that theory, well then that would be research and I would have to have your permission to get your cholesterol level and a few thousand other people's cholesterol levels all put into a big database to compare to a thousand or so people from San Francisco. So that's different now. I'm using uh, the intellectual property, I suppose, the, the results of your test for something that isn't just for you. It's, it's for a scientific research question. And that's different. So in this PRISM study, as well as testing uh, for the results on the particular child's tumour and blood, we're putting all the information together and getting to have hundreds of patients' information put together and in a way that we can try to learn something about the use of this technology and how best to apply it in the years to come. So that's another reason this is called research and that's another reason why uh, we have to get uh, more detailed permission from people and we have to get approval from our ethics committee and our regulators, etc., because we're doing research and it's research that involves humans and in particular it's research that involves children and the ethics committees are always very careful about anything that involves children and want to protect the rights of the children and their parents and make sure that everyone's doing the right thing as they do research. The ethics committee wants to ensure that people aren't doing dodgy research, they're not exposing children to risks of harm and they're not asking unreasonable things of children and their parents and you know and that the science is valid. And they're the reasons why this PRISM project is called research and why we need particular permission from the parents and the child if they're old enough before submitting blood and tumour samples into this project. So again, we're not conducting the tests in a routine hospital or pathology lab. We're conducting it in a research lab. Some of the techniques that we're using are well-established techniques but some of them are more experimental techniques, tests where we're still trying to get the technology to work very well and very reliably. We're using the results in a way to uh, interpret them in a, a less established way, a, a way that's still under evaluation, still being developed. And we're submitting the data into a larger database of hundreds of patients so that we can learn something of scientific value. They're the reasons why we have to call this research and it's not just the same as sending off a blood sample to a private lab or a hospital lab to have your cholesterol level measured. 
And finally, before I get on to the actual PRISM study and its details, I should stress that this podcast episode, this recording that explains the trial, has not been approved by the Ethics Committee as an official explanation of the trial. As I dictate this recording in February 2021, I don't have official approval for this to serve as an official explanation of the trial. Believe it or not, the Ethics Committee of a hospital will require that the information sheets that are printed out to explain the study have been approved. But they also need to approve any official information that comes by way of a video or a recording or a pamphlet. All of those things get official approval from the Ethics Committee. And at the time I record this, I don't have that approval. Now, I might get that approval in time, but for now, uh, this recording couldn't be taken as an official explanation of the study. Rather, you'd need to get the study explained to you by your own doctors and in association with reading the information sheets that they'll have printed out for you. Now let me turn to the actual PRISM study so I can explain what the study's about and if you were here in Australia and it was being presented to you, well, you could give consideration to whether you want to uh, give permission to the team to enrol your child in this PRISM study. First, let me tell you that the PRISM study is a national study in Australia. It's being conducted at the children's cancer centres around Australia in all of the capital cities and in uh, Newcastle as well, which isn't a capital city. And the study leadership is in the University of New South Wales in Sydney. It's in a building called the Children's Cancer Institute. That's a freestanding research institute that's positioned within the university. And that's the main area where samples are shipped so that they can undergo all these sophisticated tests. So a first question would be, why are my doctors bringing this trial to my attention? Why, why my particular child, uh, not all the other children in the hospital, for instance? There's two main reasons for that. Most of the time, we are offering this trial to parents whose children have a cancer that is what we call a higher-risk cancer or a high-risk cancer. What do we mean by that? Well, there's some forms of childhood cancer where treatment with drugs and surgery, for instance, is very, very effective and we can expect that just about all children with a certain type of cancer might be cured of their disease. Certain of the kidney tumours, for instance, there's a Wilms tumour of the kidney, uh, a lot of those patients have a very good outlook. Some of the forms of leukaemia have a very good outlook. And there's a number of other types of childhood cancer where uh, existing treatments work very well and we can be very optimistic that the cancer will be eradicated and never return. On the other hand, there are forms of childhood cancer where we can't say that's the case. There are situations where we have treatment, and, but it might be that 
the risk of the cancer not being cured is actually higher than those other diseases. So high-risk cancers are the ones where the treatment might be effective, but it may fail, and particularly those where we judge there's a higher risk that the treatment might not be effective. And then sadly, there are some tumour types where we lack treatments altogether that can be uh, very effective, and they likewise are called high-risk cancers. The first group of patients to be considered when we talk about the PRISM study, therefore, are those patients with high-risk cancers. These are the ones where we're really looking for some clues, something that can help us to define a better treatment for those particular children as individuals, plus learn something for children of the future with those diseases. So that's the first group, children with uh, high-risk cancers. By the way, our federal government here in Australia has been very generous lately and they are expanding the funding for this trial and we hope eventually to be able to do this sort of analysis on the tumours on just about all children, not just the children with high-risk disease. But again, as I dictate this recording in February 2021, mostly it's a trial that's for patients whose tumours are high-risk forms of cancer. There's a second group of patients, a smaller group, who are also able to be in this PRISM study, and they're children that have very rare tumours. All childhood cancer is rare, but we're talking about the very, very rare tumours where we don't know much about the tumours because they're so rare, or it might be children whose tumours are difficult to diagnose. It's difficult to be sure what the tumour is when we look at it with a microscope and with our scans and everything. This sort of analysis of DNA can sometimes help us to work out exactly what sort of tumour it is that we're dealing with. So that's called the rare tumours cohort within the PRISM study. But most of the patients enrolled on the study are those who are considered to have high-risk cancer or else they're patients who haven't even had a biopsy yet and don't yet have a diagnosis of high-risk cancer, but where we have some scans or some other results that make us worry that it is going to be a high-risk cancer, and so we want to uh, put a part of the biopsy aside for this project, and that's why we need permission ahead of time. Making our way through the information sheets a bit further is the question... Where is the research being done? Well, each hospital that's participating in the trial will have its own information sheets and it will list the uh, particular uh, doctor who's in charge of the study at that particular centre and then it usually will list a number of the other doctors in the unit who are leading the trial from the medical point of view at that centre. And like I said, the coordination of the trial is being performed at the Children's Cancer Institute over at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and uh, the medical leadership of the whole national effort is at the Sydney Children's Hospitals Network at the Randwick campus. And the study is sponsored. A research study always has a sponsor and the sponsor is the Australian and New Zealand Children's Haematology Oncology Group. That's our national research trials group. And the funding for the study comes from multiple sources. There's 
research grants that have been obtained, there's funding from the state and federal governments and there's philanthropic donations and the funding bodies are all listed at a website. The study is for children and young adults up to 21 years of age. Occasionally they'll make an exception and allow a slightly older patient to be in the study, but that's mostly if they've got a tumour type that is really a paediatric tumour type. For instance, if a 23-year-old has a, let's say, a rhabdomyosarcoma, well, that's a tumour that's more often found in children than in older adults. And that might be a situation where uh, permission can be obtained uh, to be enrolled on this study. On the other hand, if a patient was older than 21 and they had a form of cancer that was a typical adult cancer, say a breast cancer or lung cancer, well, then that wouldn't really be a suitable tumour type to enrol in this study. Next, our information sheets go through some of the uh, standard statements that we always have in research information sheets. Firstly, to stress that it's voluntary to participate in research studies, including this one. Parents and children are under no pressure to participate in research. They have every right not to participate. And if they don't want to participate, well, that choice will be respected and no one will be angry at them or hold it against them or have repercussions or anything. Everyone's absolutely free to be in research or not to be in research. And indeed, if people agree to be in a research study of any sort, normally there is capacity to change your mind and say, no, I don't want to be in this anymore and I don't want to take your experimental drug anymore or I don't want to have my tumour tested anymore, or you could even say, I want the tumour sent back. I don't even want you to keep it in the lab. I don't want it in the freezer. You, can, you have all the rights to do these things uh, if you want. Or you might just say, look, I don't want to be in this research study anymore, but you've got the samples over there in the lab, and I'm very happy for you to keep researching it. Everything's fine, and uh, ultimately the parents and the children are in charge. Next, what does it involve for uh, your child? if you agree to participate. Like I said before, what it involves is sending a sample of the cancer to the research labs along with a sample of the child's normal cells, which we normally get from a blood sample. You can get it from skin cells or bone marrow, but mostly it's about five mils of blood that's sent uh, along with the tumour sample uh, to the labs. If the child has a high-risk form of leukaemia, then we would be sending a bone marrow sample usually or a blood sample if there's leukaemia in the blood. But that's what it's about, sending a blood sample and a sample of the tumour or leukaemia to the research labs. And it might be that the biopsy or removal of tumour has already taken place and the samples are in the lab and ready to go. Or it might be that the biopsy is being planned or uh, there's a planned operation ahead and we're going to take that opportunity to keep a fragment of the tumour to send to the research study. What's going to happen to the samples once they get to the research lab? Firstly, there'll be a whole lot of DNA testing performed on the tumour sample and the blood sample. 
So we're going to perform something called genome sequencing. And this is working out the exact uh, sequence of the DNA in the tumour and in the blood. And then we'll be able to compare the tumour to the blood. And uh, we'll be looking for any sign of a mutation in the DNA, a genetic change that's taken place in the tumour. And that genetic change might explain why it became a tumour. And it may lead us to think that a certain drug might be useful. And it might be a drug we wouldn't have thought of until we found that abnormality. Beyond that, we're also trying to get the tumour cells to grow in test tubes so we can then test certain drugs against the cells in the test tubes and in other experiments in the lab. So we might think that we might have 10 drugs, for instance, that we identify and we think, look, we think these are the ones we should look at. Well, there's a way to test if they might work by growing tumour cells in the lab and then adding the drugs to see if the drugs kill the tumour. And that's at the more experimental end of things, I suppose. All that genome sequencing is much more established and uh, the machines and the equipment are all much better established as giving reproducible results and results that we can pretty much rely on, though it is still research. Whereas growing the cells and testing if drugs will kill them, that's a little bit more at the experimental end of things. And after several weeks, most of these results will be available, particularly the genome sequencing results. And then what we do is put together what's called a multidisciplinary tumour board or a molecular tumour board. A tumour board is a meeting that cancer units have, and they've been having them for decades, where we all get together and the radiologists show us the scans and the pathologists show us the biopsy under the microscope and we all get to talk about what's the right thing to do for each individual patient. So that's called a tumour board and these are routine things in every hospital that treats cancer. Well this particular tumour board is called a molecular tumour board and the particular focus in this meeting isn't so much to look at the scans and the tissue biopsy but to look at all of these special results that we've got from the research tests that we've done on the tumour and the blood. And at that meeting we have uh, the doctors, the cancer doctors, but we have genetics experts and scientists and drug experts and all sorts of people. It's quite an amazing group of people and all gathering from all over the country in a Zoom meeting and able to talk about each individual patient. It's a really impressive group of people, I've got to say, uh, people with a extraordinary expertise in one particular area or some other particular area and everyone gets together to talk about the results and to see if there's anything in those results that makes you think that a certain drug could be recommended and the people in the lab you know take days and days and weeks getting all the information together and putting it into a format that can be presented in a way that we can all look at it and they review the literature and every obscure DNA abnormality that they've found is uh, looked at and researched and they can tell us because none of us can come to a meeting like that and know exactly what the significance of every little DNA change might be. We, we have these uh, members of the group that are researching every abnormality and come to the table with a lot of information ready to go to share with us. Now it's important to understand 
that we might not find anything useful for each individual child. Uh, we can't make promises that we're going to find a wonder drug every time we enrol a child on this PRISM study. In fact, we'd have to say that a lot of the time we might not find out anything that's useful. And so we need parents to understand that, not to get their hopes up that we're automatically going to find something magic. This is experimental. This is research. We are trying to make it work. We are trying to learn something and we are hoping that this is the way of the future and that it's going to give us answers to uh, difficult treatment decisions, but we cannot make a promise that we're always going to find anything useful, and a lot of the time we won't. After that molecular tumour board and with uh, lots of discussion, then an official report is prepared uh, by the study leadership, and that gets sent to the treating doctors. And all of this is taking weeks and weeks and might be two or three months before a report is ready. So it's not automatically available. We can't enrol on PRISM and get an answer next week that says, here, give this drug or give that drug. Uh, it's not like that. And so most of the time we're having to make decisions according to our, our more normal or usual ways of choosing treatments based on medical literature and our expertise, etc. But this is something to get started and set up and see if it can give us some useful information, you know, several weeks down the track that might indicate that uh, a different drug or an additional drug could be a useful thing to do. Now, as I continue to plough through the parent information sheets, a few other things. When we submit the blood sample and the tumour sample, we also submit information about the child's illness. For instance, we will tell them that the child is uh, of a certain age and where the tumour is located and what sort of tumour the pathologists consider it to be and if the child's had any earlier treatment, what has been in that treatment. All sorts of medical facts like that are submitted, again, with permission to the Molecular Tumour Board group. Furthermore, the research protocol for this study asks that after being enrolled on the study that we continue to do scans or ultrasounds or x-rays about every three months over the next year or two. Now, that very often that would be what we would be doing anyway. So it's probably not going to represent additional scans, but they particularly like us to ensure that we're doing those sorts of scans about every three months for the first year after enrolling on the study, whether we start a new drug on the basis of this study or whether we don't. Again, quite probably those scans would not be more than what would be being done anyway as part of standard care. Next, there's a couple of additional optional studies, I guess, that have been added to this PRISM study. So the main study is that study of analysing the tumour and the blood uh, looking at the DNA and looking at drug sensitivity in the test tube. But there's a couple of other studies that have been uh, added on, if you like. One of them is what's called the psychosocial sub-study. So this is more research from the psychological uh, standpoint. For instance, there would be uh, certain families that come to the PRISM study and 
It might be that their child has been treated with other drugs and nothing's worked. And so they come to this study somewhat somewhat desperate to find some useful information, something that will be of a help to them. Well, you can imagine then, as they contemplate being in the study and then the samples are sent off, that there's, there's an emotional response to that. There's, there might be hopes or there may be fears or there may be anxiety or maybe, maybe some people will be unrealistic in what they're expecting or maybe will think this is a guaranteed silver bullet, which, like I just said, it isn't. There's all sorts of differing responses to being in a study like this and we think it's important that we, we look at that side of things. We look at parents' and children's experience of being in the study, what they expected, did they get results from their doctor, did they understand the results in hindsight, did they really know what they were signing up for, those sorts of questions. So we've got this very expert group of behavioural science researchers who are doing a psychosocial sub-study and it, it involves uh, contacting you some weeks later and there's some questionnaires to fill out and some of them can be done over the telephone or in writing and they're not huge and lengthy and then there's a later on there's some telephone interviews those sorts of things and they're described in the information sheets and again that's an optional extra people who don't want to participate in that can still be in the main study and so uh, people who are willing to be contacted provide some contact details so they can we can see if they want to be in that study the other one is a health economics sub study these tests are incredibly expensive in fact if you wanted to get these tests done in a private lab well there are such labs around the world but you know, we'd be talking many, many thousands of dollars to have these tests performed at, at a private lab somewhere. There's, uh, there's one in Boston. I think there's others all over the place. So they are very expensive, and so we're very grateful for all the support from our donors and our governments in supporting this study. But one of the questions will be, is that money worth it? And, for instance, if one day we could test tumours and always work out the right drug to try and not give the wrong drug, well, you can imagine that would be a step forward uh, in terms of health economics. If we always could pick the right drug, maybe it won't be for 10 or 20 years, but if we could always pick the right drug and never give the wrong drug, that would have economic benefits. And it might even be that it ended up cheaper to spend a whole lot of money testing the tumour, but then get the right drugs. So that's an area of research, and that's what you call health economics, and that's another separate study. So we would hope to prove eventually that it's cost-effective to do this sort of testing, even though it's very expensive, because it can guide treatment in some way. Now, I think uh, we're some years away from proving that, and it is research, but the important thing is to be collecting the data and so if parents agree to be in this sub-study, this health economic sub-study, then there's some questionnaires to fill out and, and then there's a permission form to uh, allow the study group to get information from Medicare, that's the Australian uh, health insurance system, to look at what costs are generated in a child's care uh, moving forward from the time of study enrolment. And hopefully somehow 
eventually the people who understand health and economics will be able to work something out. Again, that health economics uh, study is optional and people can be in the main study to analyse the tumour without being in the health economics study. It's completely optional. And in fact, once a, a child turns 14 years of age, they are asked to give their consent again by signing the form all over again for that uh, Medicare health costs part of the study. Let's talk about some of the risks and benefits of participating in this sort of a study. Firstly, there's the blood and the tissue sample collection. Well, taking blood, there's a risk from taking blood. You can have a bruise if it's a needle. Maybe it hurts taking blood. But the blood might be taken from a central line, of course. And then there's the collection of the tissue. Oftentimes, the, the biopsy will be being done as part of standard care or some tumour will have been removed as part of standard care. But from time to time, it might be that uh, one of the main reasons for taking the biopsy is for this sort of analysis, this sort of genetic analysis of the tumour. And so then a discussion would have to take place in each particular situation about uh, what are the risks of taking such a biopsy? Are there any risks? As you know, every time you have an operation or something in a hospital, uh, a whole separate consent form is signed and permission is granted, etc. Next, there's the risks of having scans afterwards. But like I said, most of the X-rays or MRIs or other scans that are being done uh, following enrolment in this study are part of standard care. So I don't think there'll often be extra scans being done that wouldn't be being done anyway. So when we're treating children with cancer, we're regularly needing to do scans. We need to see if the tumour is responding and getting smaller with our drugs or if it might be growing or if it might have spread elsewhere. So there are scans being done and the results of those scans are important to this study. But a, a lot of the time, they are the scans that would be being done as part of standard care. They're not additional uh, scans. So uh, the doctors and the parents will need to discuss this in each particular situation to see whether it any additional scans or any additional tests might be being performed just for being in this study. But I do think most of the time the scans will be those that are being done as part of routine care, not being done just for this research. Next we have to talk about a very important question. Let me explain. Most of the time when children develop cancer or leukaemia, there's no explanation for why it happened. Parents are always asking, why did my child get cancer or leukaemia? And the great majority of the time, our answer is we don't know why, but it's nothing to do with lifestyle. It's nothing to do with what you eat or what you drink or where you live it's nothing to do with lifestyle. Adult cancers commonly are associated with lifestyle like smoking or not enough fibre in the diet, uh, you know, melanoma from excessive sun exposure, things like that in adult cancer. But in paediatric cancer, it's very, very rare that there's anything in lifestyle that caused the cancer. And then parents ask, is it genetic? And I, I think what they're asking is, is it 
something the child inherited or were they born with some genetic abnormality? And that's what this next discussion is about. It seems like a small proportion of children with cancer actually are born with some sort of a condition that increased their chances of getting cancer. It didn't mean they were definitely going to get cancer right from the start, but they were somewhat more likely to get cancer or leukaemia than other children. And it seems like it's about 8-10% of children with cancer or leukaemia have one of these conditions. We call it a cancer predisposition syndrome. So they might have some genetic variation, I guess, that just made them more likely to get cancer. Like I said, it didn't mean they were always going to get cancer, but they were more likely to get cancer. You might have heard of some of these conditions. There's, there's a condition you might have heard of where adult women are more likely to get breast cancer, for instance. You might have heard of this BRCA gene and uh, women with one variety of the BRCA gene are more likely to get breast cancer than other women. It doesn't mean they all get breast cancer, but there is a heightened risk. And there's a number of uh, similar sorts of genes uh, that we find in children that likewise increase the risk of getting cancer. So when we test the blood from the child and look at the DNA, we can see if one of these conditions is present. We can see if the child has one of these identified gene variations that increases the risk of getting cancer. And so it may well explain why they got cancer in the first place. Now remember, most of the time we're not going to find something like this, but occasionally we will, and that might explain why the child got cancer or leukemia in the first place. Now, you might think that that's a good thing to know about, and I would say most of the time it is a good thing to know about, and I would say most parents would be interested to know if we found such an abnormality. But it's not quite as simple as that because it has repercussions for other people. If we find that the child has a particular gene that increases the risk of cancer, well, that gene might just have started with that child, but it's also possible they inherited it from their mother or their father. So if we find it in the child, we may have to test the mother and the father. And then if we find that the child did inherit the gene from the mother or the father, well, then that's got all sorts of implications and repercussions. Firstly, that might upset the mother or the father knowing that. But beyond that, then they might have to test any other children that they have or the mother or father have to test their brothers and sisters and then all of their children. You can end up having to look at an entire family tree tracking a gene abnormality to see who might have it and who might not. And to do that sort of tracking through a whole family is complicated and uh, requires a whole lot of genetic counselling and it can be traumatic for people, it creates anxiety. I would suggest 
it's worth doing most of the time. And like I said, most parents would like to know if we found such an abnormality. But in this study, uh, parents and patients are given the option to say, look, if you find one of these abnormalities, I don't want to know about it. I don't think a lot of parents say that and say, I don't want to know about it, but some do, and they've got the right to say, I don't want to know about it. And so they're given the option to say, I don't want to know about it if you find one of these genetic variations. They're called a, a, a germline gene mutation uh, that increases the risk of cancer. So that's, a, that's an important thing to know about because it's, you know, it's what we call a can of worms when you go down that track if you find an abnormality. Now, by the way, we're not analysing all of the DNA looking for other uh, genetic abnormalities. We're only really looking at the ones that increase the risk of getting cancer. So we're not looking uh, for the genetic changes that predict if you'll go bald when you're older or that uh, predict that you've got a higher risk of diabetes or vascular disease or high cholesterol. We're not looking at those. We're analysing these uh, blood DNA changes that are associated with an increased cancer risk, but not all the other thousands and thousands of other diseases. That's not part of what we're able to do. Uh, there is a privacy consideration in being in a study like this when we have to send scans and blood samples and tumour samples. Well, we have to attach uh, the child's health information to those and the name to those and there are strict rules about how that data is stored and how it's analysed and uh, a lot of safeguards to uh, maintain privacy and keeping information only to the people who really need it for the purpose of doing this study. Uh, so there's a lot of safety measures in place to maintain confidentiality and certainly when we publish any results of the study uh, or appear on the news or on TV or on the radio, we are not going to be uh, revealing individual patients' names and dates of birth and things like that. The parent information sheets then go on to describe some uh, elements of research that we include in uh, all of our research studies. There are certain rights that parents and children have and we're we go to great lengths to make sure they are well aware of those rights. For instance, the, the right to withdraw from the study that I mentioned earlier or the right not to be in the study. There's sections on, in the information sheets about any compensation for injuries and uh, complications. Uh, we point out that the study will not cost uh, participants anything. It's, it doesn't cost anything to be in the study. And at the same time, uh, the parents and the children won't be paid to be in the study. Uh, we talk about where the samples will be stored and for how long, uh, where the data about the child will be stored and for how long. We confirm that uh, the patient samples that are collected won't be sold to drug companies or biotech companies. Now, hopefully from this research, we will uh, identify new treatments for high-risk cancers and it's possible that... Some of those treatments may one day be commercialised, but we won't be selling the samples to drug companies or biotech companies. We describe in our information sheets uh, where the research funding has been secured. 
and reassure parents that no member of the research team will receive a personal financial benefit from the child's participation in the research project, apart from their ordinary wages, of course. The research has been reviewed by what's called a Human Research Ethics Committee. In particular for this study, it was reviewed by the Hunter New England Human Research Ethics Committee. And the research is being carried out according to the National Statement on Ethical Conduct in Human Research. And that's a statement that's been developed to protect the rights and interests of people who agree to participate in human research studies. We describe where you can go to get some more information, either from one of the doctors in the cancer unit who's participating in the trial, or the research governance officer, or the ethics committee. And in particular, if people have concerns or complaints about the conduct of a research study, there's always somewhere to go to say, look, I think this is a problem in a certain research study, or I think this wasn't being done properly. These are the rights that everyone has when they agree to be in a research study. Now, that's pretty much what's contained in our information sheets. There's a lot more detail, but that's something of an introduction to this PRISM study. Uh, It's a very exciting study. A lot of other countries are doing very similar work, looking at tumours, analysing them in great detail, and hoping to find a drug that you mightn't have thought of and then that your doctors can look at giving. It's important to stress that this is not a study that then provides the drugs. That would be a separate process for the treating doctors to work out. This is a project that looks to analyse the tumour and hopefully identify drugs that might be used but it does not provide the drugs and it does not automatically have a research trial of those drugs. Now, uh, the whole PRISM team is working hard to find ways to access some of these new drugs because they're not all routinely available and we're all trying to be in big international research trials to test drugs when it's appropriate. But this particular PRISM study does not provide the drugs and does not have a bunch of research clinical trials of drugs automatically available. That's important to stress. But like I said, we're all pretty excited to be in this study. We, we think it's the way of the future and our governments have committed huge amounts of money to it and so have governments around the world. Most of the time I would be encouraging people to be in the study if they're given that opportunity. I don't see a lot of downside to being in it. I don't see a lot of reasons to worry about being in the study. If the tissue is available to be in this study and there's enough tissue to do all the usual normal things of medical care and there's some left over to be in this study, well, I would mostly say it's a good idea to do it. There's not a lot to lose from being in this study, but it's a free world, it's research, it's uh, the hospital belongs to the parents and the child, not to me and uh, they have the right to, to decide what happens to their tissue samples. Finally, let me stress one more time that this is not the official Ethics Committee approved explanation of this trial. This is me just explaining it as useful background for people who might be thinking about being in the PRISM trial or whether doctors are talking about the PRISM trial but official explanations of it need to come from the treating team. 
in association with reading the printed information sheets that are provided. So I think I'll leave it there. It's Valentine's Day, February 14, 2021, as I record this podcast, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.